All right, folks, welcome back to class. Um, today, we are talking about episode 11 of Gleipnir and episode 11 of Tower of God. Um, but, obviously for me, I'm talking about Gleipnir, and um, the story obviously is coming to an end for the first season. I'm pretty sure this is only a 12-episode season, um, so we only have one more after this. And, uh, yeah, it's gotten pretty wild because I think they're showing us a lot of the past, finally kind of explaining how we got to where we are, which is great. Um, because, you know, we start off, you know, following Shuichi who has had some kind of memory loss issue and we're finally filling in the blanks similar to the way that Shuichi is filling in the blanks. Obviously we get, we're privy to a little bit more information than him. Because uh, we get Elena's side of the picture, and we also get, at least in this episode, there was a lot involving the alien, how he decided that on this game, this search for the coins, and then also the original group to start it, um, which apparently this girl Hanako was the one that came up with the game kind of idea because the uh, alien was lazy and didn't want to go find his friends. So she came up with the game. And she started with her friends, which was Elena, Shuichi, um, lion hair looking guy at the end, and some blonde chick who might have been Claire. I can't really tell. So um, pretty interesting. Um, I got to say, this wasn't really like an action-packed episode. There was some action um, when Shuichi fought off the sword guy. But just in general, it was more like talking about the morality of what they did. Um, and I love when shows delve into this because, I mean, maybe I'm a little more logical than the normal person. I don't really like, I, I don't like thinking with a lot of emotion a lot of times because I think in a lot of cases it leads to bad decisions, specifically in a case of life or death like this. Um, so in, in, Obviously, in the last couple of episodes, they've been fighting off that group headed by Madoka, the big, like, gorilla-looking mug. And um, in the last episode, they end up basically setting them a trap where they go into these um, f- this flower patch of oleander. They set it on fire, and it becomes a, po- a really strong poison in the smoke. And apparently, nearly all of them died, including... Uh, Abukawa, who was that friend that Shuichi had, you know, spoken to a few times, the guy who had been killing all the dogs. Um, so obviously not a great dude because he's been slaughtering dogs and stuff like that. But Shuichi only knows of him as a good guy and a friend of his. So when he's confronted by a uh, blind swordsman guy for basically the crimes of killing his whole squad and, and killing Madoka, who, you know, sword guy thought was essentially the messiah of sorts, gave him hope and stuff like that. Shuichi asks him about uh, Abukawa and says, he was such a good guy. How did he get wrapped up with you guys? And he's like, you don't know him at all, right? And um, I don't know. I felt like a real real turning point for Shuichi. Obviously, last episode, finally deciding to get his hands dirty, um, kind of take part in an ostensibly terrible thing, right? Killing like, 15 people obviously not a great thing but you know given the search the situation which was like an us versus them 
um, we're going to kill your whole squad or, you know, we're going to force you to work for us essentially, which would be bad in its own right. I mean, it would be sort of like a captured scenario, prisoner scenario. Um, so either be their prisoners or all die. Right. And, you know, also the added ultimatum of give us someone to kill or we're going to kill all of you. So, you know, in those situations, I don't really know what the rest of their team thought was going to happen. Um, Yota and I can't remember the guy's name. Isao, I believe, the big Wookiee looking tree boy. He decides, you know, oh, I can't believe they did all that so callously and all this stuff. And I, I don't know. Like, obviously, taking a life is tough, especially in real life. But <laughs> when they're faced with a situation like that and all of these people have superpowers, like, I just don't understand how it would be that surprising that they would do something like that. You know, and they're blaming Claire and Shuichi completely for it. You know, basically ostracizing them to some to some extent for basically having that killer instinct, which I I, I don't know. I, I feel is pretty unfair considering the situation. Um, I think it's cool though because Shuichi has obviously sw- flipped a switch, and he's clearly more down for. Um, kind of dealing with these situations him and Claire kind of are talking and they say you know Claire mentions you know they had seen our faces so it's pretty much like you'll never rest and they'll always come after us for revenge and stuff like that if 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 we don't get rid of them and Shuichi later even brings it up to her he's like so you said that and I think you're right I think we probably should have just killed them all and you know kind of taken that off of our back and so I have a theory that I'm going to talk about in a bit, but I think it's pretty interesting that he's finally coming to these kind of like, in my opinion, fairly realistic um, conclusions, but also his entire character seems to have changed. In the earlier episodes, he was much more um, snivelly in some regards, but a lot uh, more innocent and unwilling to take risks or unwilling to get his hands dirty. And now it's like a complete shift. I mean, end of last episode, and especially this episode, it's like you literally don't even know who the guy is. Um, He's not the same main character we've had for the first 10 episodes. So I don't know. There's something about that I really like. Um, He does have some interactions with the uh, alien, and you know, there's kind of this revelation at some point that the alien didn't come up with it by himself. And Shuichi catches on when he said, we decided this game and we had no clue what it was going to end up like. Um, I thought that, that was pretty cool, especially like Shuichi finally catching on to some of these like subtle cues that people are dropping him. Because I think Elena, if you go back into some of those earlier episodes, she did drop cues. Some of these other guys drop cues, stuff like that. And so, um, you know, he's finally kind of putting two and two together. And then even like Esau, when he said, no, I, I remember you at cram school. You had like a ton of friends. And he's like, well, that's crazy. I was the only person in the cram school. Like that's not a realistic thing, right? Like you're, what school is open for one student? Like that's just dumb to even think that that's possible. And then, you know, the guy saying, I literally knew you as a cram schooler. Like why would you not believe him or at least think, okay, something's clearly, you know, jacked up in my memories uh, let's try to get to the bottom of it. But anyway, I, I mean, really solid episode. Um, I'm loving the way they're going to end this season. Assuming it is only 12 episodes. 
But uh, yeah, it's really, really strong right now. There was zero etchy in this episode, which is surprising. Like no fan service whatsoever. So that was really sick. Um, and, you know, now we're kind of seeing some of the original people's powers, right? Elena was one of the originals. Um, and Lion Hair Boy at the end was one of the originals. And they're just like so unbelievably strong compared to everyone else, it seems like. Um, that's pretty cool. And uh, I guess the one or two outstanding things really left is like, where the hell did Sambay go? The big uh, karate boy that they fought in episode five. Um, I feel like now is probably a good time to be like, hey, let's let's get together and make sure that we don't die. Because they think that these people are after them, kind of following them. So why would you not have like your big fat, you know, <laughs> well, he's not fat, but your big ass uh, knife boy hanging out with you. Because he said he'd protect them and, and like work with them. So it seems a little weird and... Um, I don't want to keep saying unrealistic because like it's just show, but it seems like a weird choice or omission for the author to just like kind of write him out of the story for five episodes now, even though in episode five, he said, you know, I'll protect you guys or I'll work with you guys. Then they go in the mountains and they're in like basically insane peril and there's no mention of, well, maybe we should talk to a sand bay, you know, after that. So I don't know, it's just a little weird to bring in the character and then completely forget about him. Uh, a little bit more, I guess you could call it, like character development with Elena early in this episode. She basically goes and sees the uh, alien guy. It's basically like, if I kill you right now, the game ends, doesn't it? And he basically says, yeah, you can kill me, but the game is kind of out of my hands now. I honestly have nothing to do with the game anymore. And that's also another kind of really interesting thing because I think it... it plays on the fact that sometimes you can you can do things and think it'll be innocent or something like that and it just gets away from you or like for instance a rumor in school you can make a rumor or school work whatever you make a rumor and by the time it, you hear it again it starts getting really you know out of hand off the rails and gets really away from your original intention which was just a, you know a nice little joke or you know sometimes i guess bullying you could see someone just making a joke once and then all of a sudden now it's a big thing and people are really hurt by it so very interesting um parallel to real life there where things can really just get away from you and you just end up not how intended but i mean i love that they brought kind of more information about shuichi him and his original cram school group i i cannot wait to learn more about them i mean elena's insanely strong uh, lion looking hair guy, insanely strong. Hanako may be dead. I, I don't, I couldn't tell if that was his ability was having Hanako come out and stab everyone or if he, if she, if that was her ability, you know what I mean? Like that was a really weird scene, really cool scene for sure. Cause they just absolutely wrecked those bad boys. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really, really solid. Another 9.0 episode easily. Um, it's starting to pull up the overall season, I think, because we had a couple really terrible episodes in the middle there, and, um, you know, 10 and 11 were extremely strong, so, you know, I'm really enjoying it. Speaking of liking a show, I am absolutely loving Tower of God as well, and now you are going to be talking with Ricky over here for Tower of God, episode 11, and, uh, yeah, I mean, shit's just gotten real on both shows. Super hype about it. Um, hope you all are doing well, safe. 
Um, hopefully you guys are getting some sun. We've had like two weeks straight of rain, which I actually am a big fan of. But uh, yeah, I will catch you guys on the next one. Here is Ricky. A uh, peace. Welcome back, my beautiful students, to this week's extra credit. I am your grounded professor, Ricky. I haven't moved from the seat, it feels like, all day. I've been a workaholic, and uh, work has beaten me down today. So I decided to take a nice, nice break for class and watch Tower of God, episode 11. Now, this one is kind of curious, because we not only get a brand new test, but we get some serious, awesome plot developments as well. Let's dive into it. So we start with basically bomb, like we saw in the last episode at the end, sitting right in front of his donor, his Shinzu donor. And this person or thing rather seems to be the person he also has to ask if he's allowed to take this special test and allow Rachel to pass on into climbing the tower with him. And it seems to boil down to a single question that is alluded to to throughout this entire episode. What is your desire? And this makes sense from what we've seen with irregulars, because if you notice all the regulars were chosen by the navigator, they were chosen by the powers that be within the tower themselves. So I imagine that they don't really necessarily need their motives questioned, but also this test is only allowed for irregulars, or at least the ability to ask the administrator about it. And again, this seems to all allude back to the singular point that irregulars got into the towers on their own. They are the anomalies, both in their presence and in their purpose, because we don't really know what, you know, an irregular's motive is if they manage to get in the tower of their own free will. So I can understand why some administrators, or at least the rule exists, that you'd have to be vetted in some sort of way. So... He is asked, what is your desire by the big Mastodon looking thing? Also stating that Bomb has always looked very tasty to him, which is a little creepy. But what are you going to do? This is the tower. The things are weird in here. But basically, he says later on in the episode that he thought of Rachel first and then the cafeteria. You know, all of his friends he met along the way, smiling, having fun again. He is such a pure boy that I can't help but love him for that. So, Bomb is allowed to take this test, and along with Rachel, she also has to participate in this last test as well. And what we saw in the last episode, you're allowed to help the people that are, you know, taking part of this test. But for an irregular's accomplices, there seems to be some sort of negative connotation There is, as it's been stated in the episode, a huge risk taking this test. And, you know, it's great that Bomb is such a positive influence on all these individuals climbing the tower that they don't even care. You know, that's the kind of things you have to have as a shonen protagonist, as an unchanging force in the world around you, and anyone that comes into contact with you is willing to take risks for you. That seems to be a common shonen trope that they use to good effect here. So we get some information about the last test that they call the final test, which, you know, we're nearing the end of the season, so I guess this would be the final test. And they call it the underwater test. And here's how it shakes down. Bomb and Rachel are sticked inside of a Shinzu bubble, 
and they are put underwater in this cave. Now, these creatures called net dolphins, adorable little creatures, they have like almost puka shell necklace looking things on their necks as well. Basically, once a day, they feed, and they do so by creating a Shinzu net around all these fish inside of this body of water that Bomb and Rachel have been put in. And their whole game is to make a net to close up and feed the net dolphin queen at the very top of this body of water, which is all underground. The queen looks like this weird kind of pod-looking thing with a, a an orifice I hate that word, orifice at the bottom, to suck up all the fish, and the wind condition is if Bomb and Rachel can get eaten by the queen and then get spit out at the top, everyone wins. Everybody wins. Somebody asks in the classroom as they learn about these rules, so what do we do? Well, they have a couple natural predators that go after the net dolphins, and their job is to stop any of these predators from uh halting the feeding process so what we have more the most simple one is the uh goblins and like these crazy worm looking things the worms will like throw their beak or their tube mouths into the underground water through the ground and suck up fish through the net now if rachel and bomb get eaten by one of these then everyone loses, essentially. And especially Bomb and Rachel, because presumably they get truly eaten, as opposed to the queen that would spit them out. The other ones are, you know, this creature called the bull. Now, the bull is something that the director told everyone, you do not want to run into this thing. This thing is feared by rankers as well for its ferocity. So that's like the big baddie down here. That needs to not happen. So the whole big point of this test seems to be protecting Bomb and Rachel so that their task can be completed. Now, for all of you following along, not just with me, but also with the show, I noticed the trend here on all these tests, which I think is indicative to what's going to be occurring at the top of the tower. If you notice a lot of these tests, the crown game, the tag game, the underwater test, they all focus around a team protecting one person or group or, you know, thing of interest. I wonder if the teams are being vetted by their ability to protect, which would make a lot of sense, right? So if you get all the way up to King Jihad and you have all these tests proving your worth as like some level of a protector then he might just be looking for people to recruit not just as a princess of jihad but as directors administrators and stuff like that it's all an end game to me what seems like an end game to help king jihad select the most powerful people who have proven themselves to be good protectors this trend is so in my face that i wonder if someone in this group could be allowed to challenge King Jihad, and if they do so, they will retain everyone else to stay in the tower with them to be the new king's protectors. And if the new king loses, then the old king gets their protectors. 
This is very kind of interesting to me because it's starting to play into the end game of this season, I think. And I'm really excited to see that they're going to say, I, I bet all of these things have been testing your ability to protect as a team, as a squad against the forces that be what forces that be i wonder what those are i don't think we have an idea yet what those are so this test begins bomb and rachel are sitting in their little bubble and they have a couple conversations here and there about what did the administrator ask you like we said you know what do i desire i desire you at the top of the tower i desire all my friends to be there too and they have a couple other little tiny conversations just proving how much rachel doesn't deserve the pureness that is bomb and Kuhn is coming up with another big brain play, right? He's coming up with a way to scheme on uh, ensuring that the goblins don't get at the net dolphins, the worms don't eat anything that's, you know, trying to uh, impede their progress or anything. You know, basically, he is scheming with all the re- resources and tools he has at his disposal to make sure that this goes as smoothly as possible without a hitch. Now, a couple things happen when the test finally starts, and some of these developments are rather large. So as we start, everyone's squatted up, everyone's there. We see Shibizu is staking out all the net dolphins, you know, just trying to stay close and make sure everything's good to go. He then is approached by the bull, this crazy, maybe eight foot, 10 foot tall looking thing with a sideways vertical mouth, one eye. And one like mouth tentacle, like kind of think of like a catfish that has these those two whiskers. Think of one big one on the side and he uses it like a whip. Shibizu is being chased around. He basically tries to defend the net dolphins from the bull, stabs him in the back, and the bull is pissed. But luckily, right before Shibizu gets eaten, he gets saved by a knock in the green April and in Dorsey, who treat the bull like a game, basically like a bet. I bet I can take it down in five minutes. Okay, if you can't, then I'm going after it. All right, it's a fucking deal. So, it looks at first as if Endorsey is kicking the shit out of the bull. Like, really, like, no diff, just having a good time. The bull runs away suddenly, out of nowhere, during this battle. And Endorsey goes ahead and tries to chase after it. And a knock follows after her into the dark of the cave. Now we cut away to Kuhn having a conversation with the little girl who I finally realized her name was uh, Nari. Nare. Nari? Nare. We'll go with Nare. So Nare basically says, hey, Kuhn, I think I have an idea if you want to find out if there's an underground pass here that we can utilize as kind of a flanking point. And this entire time she's had this little jar on her back. She whips it out. And this tiny, adorable little creature comes out, very slug-like with like kind of wings and cute blue eyes. But then it picks up speed and starts to fly and notices a trail of Shinzu is being left behind this little creature. And she goes, I guess there really is an underground pass here. And Kuhn asks a very interesting question that why didn't you tell anybody that you are an anima? A person who could control divine sea fish or uh, spirit fish, divine fish with Shinzu. So she is not only a little Shinzu user, we have just found out another way people can use Shinzu. You can use it to control any creature in theory. Because he asks Nare, hey, 
is it possible for an animal to control, you know, say the net dolphins or even the bull? And she's like, I can't, but I think a ranker probably could. Now, we saw last episode that little rice ball motherfucker named Ren, who's part of the, uh, the Royal Enforcement Division. He seemed to be able to control this weird ground serpent thing. So we now have a mechanic for how he can do that. But we're starting to put the pieces together as the episode progresses. Because Anak loses the bull and Endorsey into the darkness of the cave. Meanwhile, as she's looking for him, Endorsey and the bull are just going at it. And somehow, the bull stops running, ambushes her, and seems to be stronger against Endorsey this time after the two have gotten separated. This is starting to look a little schemey. And we see this scheme kind of come into its own when Anak is approached by Ren, little rice ball dude. Little rice ball dude has put on a totally different face and is eating pizza for some reason. I'm not really sure how the hell he got that or that pizza as we know it exists in this world. But Ren approaches a knock. Ren essentially goats a knock with some very, very personal information. He starts teasing her about how she's just like the late Anak Jihad, her mother. This ticks Anak rightly off, looking back with a very mean look in her eye as he whips out something interesting. The necklace that she gave her mother just before she died. Why does he have that? It's starting to make a little bit of sense about his role in all this. He, I bet, was charged with the role of getting rid of these imposter princesses if they are approached in the tower, being part of the royal enforcement division. That makes total sense why that would be part of his job on behalf of King Jihad to get rid of these imposters from the women that broke his rules. Now, this goats her hard. She activates the Green April. She is fighting against Ren, who is in no way stressed. He spits out a bunch of animals from within his little rice ball outfit to attack Anak, who is kind of holding her own, and then wham. A tongue, light speed shit, comes right out of this little rice ball suit and impales a knock through the chest. Coughing up blood and everything. She is out. She does manage to wake up a little later and basically tries to reach for the green April. And Ren, in perfect sadistic fashion, at the last second kicks it away and eats it, retrieves it essentially, and then teases her, basically telling her that you are not allowed to be in the world. Your crime was being born. You are the tower's trash. And then we see that he kind of alludes to the fact that he is in fact controlling the bull with Endorsey in tow, come out of the darkness of the cave and drops Endorsey next to the green April. Ren then says, your job as a princess of Jihad is to kill her. Remember, she had the task of killing Anak and taking the Black March and the Green April. This did not happen. Now, 
He says this is your chance to redeem yourself. Do it because you are your father's daughter. Kill her. This is kind of where the episode ends, and we get an interesting cliffhanger. On the other side, right before the episode ends as well, the goblins and the worms are on the move. They're ready to go feed. This is one of the lose conditions that if they snatch up Bomb and Rachel, game over. Everyone loses. So, basically, he's basically trying to big brain another play by using Nari's divine fish to sonar an underground path to hopefully maybe flank these guys or something like that. I don't know what he's cooking up necessarily, but he basically tells all the spear bearers and everyone, hold your fire. I'm working on something else. Just wait for it. Just wait until Hots as a scout is sitting right there and a goblin comes up the cliff face to face right here and before hots can make any defensive moves any kind of stealthiness that green parasol guy throws a spear and gets him but alerts all the goblins and now they're pissed shit has gone wrong left field everything's fucked up even coon's like you idiot you absolute fool you just ruined everything and he goes oh my body moved on its own dude Quit fucking around. You're clearly not ready for this shit. I'm not exactly sure why you got chosen. But now, at the end of this episode, we have Endorsey being charged with killing a knock. And we have everyone else being chased on their heels by the entire goblin crew. Shit's going south for a lot of individuals. And Pam and Bomb and Rachel are none the wiser. They have no idea what's going on. So, this episode is quite interesting. I think I like the idea of finally seeing a princess of Jihad have her commitment to the king tested. This is one of those first times that we saw people not just have to tote the name around, like, swing their weight as in, I'm a prince of Jihad, bitch, like, get at me. But this is something now that they are being tested. The resolve as a princess is now on the line. So, and Dorsey has a choice. Will she spare a knock or will she do her duty to her king? And I want, I'm curious to see the repercussions of not doing that. Do you get placed into the same pool as a knock as being an imposter just because you failed your mission? I, I'm curious of what the implications of that really is. So the other one I liked a lot in this episode is that whole, you know, idea of all these tests being a measure of protection for something and it makes a lot of sense if you're a king and you're setting up tests and you have like one rule to give your directors and administrators is test their ability to protect me right because if you're going to come into the tower i'll grant their wish but as a result they have to protect me from any people trying to take my reign my throne so I'm really excited for episode 12. I think we're getting down to basically the end of the season. I don't know if it's going to be 12 or 13 episodes, but I will give this one a 88. I think it was a little better than last time and had some good fights. You know, Anak versus Ren and Endorsey versus the Bull. And, you know, there's a whole conversation in this episode as well about uh, Kuhn saying that Shabiz is actually a pretty good guy. But he also asks him, why did you take this risk? Why does anyone take this risk? 
to help in a, in a regular that has been deemed so unsavory to be in the tower in the first place. We're called as accomplices. Why did you do this? And I think they said something very poignant. Shibizu says, I do not want to see Bomb lose what's important to him. He had what was important to him before he entered the tower, as opposed to all of us who already lost it. This is very keen observation by Shibizu, because he's right. Everyone that came into the tower, Ho, Shibizu, even Kuhn's been alluded to it. Everyone seems to have lost something. And I wonder what the top of the tower could do to rectify that loss. But the where Bomb is irregular, not just in title and entry to the tower, he's irregular to everyone because he still has what he cherishes. And everyone recognizes the pain of those losses. They don't want to see this guy who is this brimming well of positivity and purity be tainted internally by the idea of that loss. They want to protect Bomb vicariously to feel like they could protect what they lost. It's a very interesting conversation, but I think it speaks to the characters in this show and why Bomb sticks out so much. There's so many emotional and uh, internal scars of all these characters that have been hinted at time and time again that Bomb seems to not have yet. And they don't want to see him have those things because they know the pain of that. So I guess this is the first time we've really seen someone spell, spill out why Bomb is so attractive as a friend, as a partner, as a teammate to all of these other individuals because they see that glean in his eyes of someone who has yet to see true loss, which kind of scares me because this is alluding in my mind that Bomb is going to experience some loss things in this coming maybe even this season but maybe next season it'll happen but uh that is kind of a story bell uh the story telling bell going off in my head telling me what is bomb gonna do with all that positivity in the face of true loss and i'm excited to see where the story goes from there i don't want to see it happen to my boy bomb but i think it'd be make for a really compelling story and a really nice way to end a season with Bomb finally understanding true loss like everyone else around him. So I think that's it. This is maybe a little shorter one. I say that every time, but it always comes out to like 20 minutes. Uh, thank you for listening. We're kind of wrapping up the season here, and it's starting to pick up on the uh, possible cliffhangers that could happen. Uh, if you want to watch with your ears and your eyes, hey, YouTube gang, again, the hair is just a whole mess today. But uh, if you want to listen with just your ears and not your eyes, go to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podcast, or anywhere else you get your podcast fixed. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us pop up to anyone else who's already interested in anime podcasts or things of that nature. If you want to go see some interesting new visual content, check us out on Instagram at webology.podcast. We got memes on memes on news whenever we remember to get them out. We also have an email drop us a line at webologypodcast at gmail.com recommend a show we have a growing list you guys keep sending those every week and you know we're going to get to those sooner than later hopefully we just finished up a couple of shows we wanted to do and now it's time to give you guys a couple episodes of stuff y'all wanted to do so uh anything else we got twitter at webology p i think we post there more and more every day until next time
I'm Ricky. That was Ethan. And this has been Weebology. Deuces! Weebology. Weebology.